Almost everyone seems to have an opinion about the government, but too often we disconnect our view of the government from the teaching of God's Word. We fail to ask questions like, what obligations and responsibilities do Christians have toward the government? Is there ever a time to disobey the government? If so, when? In this message from Mark chapter 12, verses 13 through 17, David Platt points us to some foundational truths from Jesus concerning the way we should think about our relationship to government and more importantly to God. As Christians, though we are being submissive to the government, our ultimate allegiance is to God. This is the Radical with David Platt podcast. Here is David with a message titled, You, God, and Government in Metro Washington, D.C. Uh, if you have a Bible, and I hope you or somebody around you does, let me invite you to open me to Mark chapter 12. What Chuck was just sharing about uh, government and the church just so happens to be where we are in God's Word today. So as you're turning, I want to make sure to welcome those of you in Arlington and MoCo and PW and Loudon, as well as others online who are physically unable to be with us. It's pretty unique that we're gathered right now in all these different locations in Metro Washington, D.C., the capital of our country, the seat of government, and one of the most prominent and prosperous countries in the world. And God is about to speak to us right now about government. So how does God relate to government? How does God relate to Congress and the Supreme Court, to legislators and lobbyists, to politicians and a president? And how do we relate to government? And Those who govern us, should we submit to government or challenge it? Do we obey it or change it or both or neither? What if we don't agree with our government? What if we are persecuted by our government? Is it ever right to disobey or defy government? If so, when? Should we work in government? How else might we participate in government? How do the laws of our government relate to the laws of our God? Should all sin be a crime? If not, then what sin should be a crime? Should we be a Christian nation? Have we ever been a Christian nation? Is any country a Christian nation? So, to be clear, I don't plan to answer all of those questions today, (laughs) but I do want to show you a passage of Scripture that gives us two foundational truths for understanding how God relates to government that are critical for us as the people of God to understand, and not just to understand, but to live according to, particularly in this city. So let's dive into the timeless word of God that transcends kings and countries and presidents and politicians and policies. I just want to walk through this text word for word, like phrase by phrase, then step back and consider what God, who's here among us right now, is saying to you and me, particularly in this city. So Mark chapter 12, verse 13 says, and they sent to him some of the Pharisees and some of the Herodians to trap him, him being Jesus here, in his talk. So let's pause there for a moment and think about what's happening. We looked last week at the end of Mark chapter 11 when 
three groups that represented the religious elite among God's people came up to Jesus on a Tuesday, and they were mad because on Monday, Jesus said, overturn tables in the temple and rebuked the type of religion they were practicing. If you remember, you can just kind of turn back in your Bible, Mark chapter 11, verse 27, we read, as they came to Jerusalem, he was walking in the temple, and the chief priests and the scribes and the elders came to Jesus. They said to him, by what authority you're doing these things? Who gave you authority to do them? So three groups of people, priests, scribes, and elders. Well, now in Mark chapter 12, we're going to see three successive groups come to Jesus to challenge him more. Here in verse 13 that we just read, it's the Pharisees and some of the Herodians. We'll come back to that in a minute. If you jump down to verse 18 in this chapter, which we'll look at next week, the group that's going to come after Jesus is the Sadducees who come to him saying there's no resurrection, and they ask him a question. And then the next week, Lord willing, we'll look at verse 28, where we read one of the scribes came up and heard them disputing one another and seeing that he answered them well, asked him which commandment is the most important of all. And all of these different groups are trying to trap Jesus, to get Jesus to say something that will either ruin his reputation with the Jewish crowds or ruin his standing with the Roman government. Remember where all of this is building. So this is starting on Tuesday. By Thursday night, all these groups will have worked together to have Jesus arrested. And by Friday, Jesus will be dead. So this is a very intentional, coordinated attempt to eventually arrest, try, and kill Jesus. So now, back to verse 13, there's two groups here, the Pharisees and the Herodians, which represented a pretty unlikely alliance. The Pharisees were pro-Israel. And the Herodians, by name, were pro-Herod, the governor of the Roman Empire, which was occupying Israel. So these guys were normally enemies. On the opposite sides of the aisle, it was like the politically far right and the politically far left coming together in an attempt to trap Jesus. And the word for trap there is a word that's used to refer to catching an animal in a snare or a fish with a hook. In many cases, this word connotes a violent pursuit of something or someone. It's clear these guys are out for blood, literally. And the next verse says, so if you jump to verse 14, they came and said to him, teacher, we know that you are true and do not care about anyone's opinion, for you are not swayed by appearances, but truly teach the way of God. Obviously, this is feigned flattery, but it's also true. Jesus is true. And unlike these Pharisees and Herodians and other leaders, he did not care about their opinion. He was not swayed by appearances, and he truly taught the way of God. And in their minds at this point, they're ready to set the trap, lay the bait with this question. Is it lawful to pay taxes to Caesar or not? Should we pay them or should we not? So a little background here. The word for taxes here is kinsos. And the reason I point that out is because it's a transliteration of the word census. 
it referred to a head tax, a census tax imposed on every single resident of Judea and Samaria. Everybody had to pay one denarius a year, which was worth about a day's labor. We learn later in Acts chapter 5, verse 37, that a man named Judas the Galilean actually led a revolt against this tax when it was established. It was deeply resented by the Jewish people. It represented Roman control over domination of God's people. And it had to be paid with a special coin that had the image of Caesar on it, or the emperor Tiberius at that time. It had an inscription on this coin that said, Tiberius Caesar, son of the divine Augustus, which basically meant son of God, which caused the Jewish people to hate this tax even more because it felt idolatrous. So these leaders are thinking, when they ask this question of Jesus, this is a no-win situation for him. If he says we should pay the tax, well, that would be unpopular with the people and tantamount to idolatry. All the people, Jewish people, would see Jesus as politically aligned with Rome, and they would revolt against him. But if he says we should not pay this tax, then the Roman authorities, represented by the Herodians, would see Jesus as revolting against them, and they would have cause to imprison or kill him. You can only imagine the conversation between these Pharisees and these Herodians that led to this moment. They said, we got it. We know what we can ask him. Well, put this question out there. We'll have our cell phones out ready to record. And as soon as he answers, we'll put it on social media. We'll have the proof that will bring him down. So what does Jesus say? But knowing their hypocrisy, he said to them, why put me to the test? Again, he starts with a question that gets to the root of their question. Why are they doing this? When someone is trying to trap you with a question like this, it's usually not the question they're asking that is the real issue. It's usually something much deeper in their hearts that's the root behind the question. And that was certainly the case here. So Jesus pauses to look at them in the eye and expose why they're doing this. Because they're against him. They want him gone. But then Jesus continues. Bring me a denarius and let me look at it. And they brought one. It's kind of ironic in and of itself that Jesus didn't have this coin with him, but they're the ones who actually have the coin with them. And then he said to them, whose likeness and inscription is this? Another question. They said to him, Caesar's. And Jesus said to them, render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's and to God the things that are God's. And they marveled at him. What a verse. Jesus just spoke in a way that was marvel-worthy, not just because he evaded the trap they were trying to set. No, Jesus just made a statement that one writer called the single most influential political statement ever made in the history of the world. Jesus in one sentence, 
just outlined the guiding statement for how people and God relate to government. I want to draw you a a picture that a, a friend and fellow pastor, Jonathan Lehman, here in our city used to describe this relationship that Jesus just outlined because it's often misunderstood. Many people read this verse and have this picture in their mind. Like you have Caesar's things over here, things that belong to government, a government like Rome or a government like the United States. This is the world of politics and government represented by this circle. And then you have God's things over here, things that belong to God. Almost like we might think of a separation between church and state. We picture that same relationship between God and government. You have the domain of government, and you have the domain of God. And while Jesus is certainly acknowledging some distinction in these domains, this picture is not what Jesus is painting. Because we know that God's things include all things. There is nothing, no thing, that is not ultimately under the sovereign governance of God, including Caesar and worldly governments, which is what makes Jesus' statement, this short statement, so breathtaking. Follow the logic. When Jesus says, whose likeness and inscription is on this coin? And they say, well, it's Caesar's inscription on the coin. Therefore, this coin belongs to Caesar. But step back. Where is God's likeness? Where is God's inscription? God's inscription is etched on the heart of every single human being. Here in verse 16, when we see this word likeness, Jesus holds up this coin. Whose likeness is this? It's the same exact word we read in the very first chapter of the Bible, the very first moment when men and women are created by God. Genesis chapter 1, verse 26, first mention of human beings in the Bible. God said, let us make man in our image after our what? Our likeness. So catch what Jesus is saying. He's saying Caesar's image is stamped on a coin, so give the coin to Caesar. But God's image is stamped on every human heart, so give God your heart. Caesar is worthy of a coin. God is worthy of your life. In other words, Jesus is not saying you have government over here and God over here. He's saying all things are God's things, Everything belongs to God, and some of those things under the governance of God belong to Caesar. But everything Caesar has, as well as Caesar himself, they all belong to God. And this changes everything about how we view government and how we relate to government in this city, in this country, in any city, in any country. So maybe write this down. Two foundational takeaways from God's word here. One, we humbly yet conditionally submit to the government in our nation. Let's think about those words. We humbly yet conditionally submit 
The word for render, Jesus said, render to Caesar what is Caesar, that means to give up something, to yield something, even as an obligation. And as the people of God, we are obligated, we are commanded by God to yield, to submit to the government in our nation. Romans 13.1 makes this crystal clear. God says, let every person be subject to the governing authorities. For there is no authority except from God, and those that exist have been instituted by God. Therefore, whoever resists the authorities resists what God has appointed, and those who resist will incur judgment. You jump down to verse 5 in the same chapter. Therefore, one must be in subjection, not only to avoid God's wrath, but also for the sake of conscience. For because of this, you also pay taxes. For the authorities are ministers of God, attending to this very thing. Pay to all what is owed to them. Taxes to whom taxes are owed. Revenue to whom revenue is owed. Respect to whom respect is owed. Honor to whom honor is owed. We saw similar language to this when we studied 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 13. Be subject for the Lord's sake to every human institution, whether it be to the emperor as supreme or governors as sent by God to punish those who do evil and to praise those who do good. For this is the will of God. Just think about these passages. Starting with Jesus' words in Mark chapter 12, they are shocking because these governments and emperors and governors that are being talked about here were not honoring to God in so many ways. We've already talked about it. They were idolatrous, exalting the emperor as a god. Yet Jesus says, render to Caesar the things that are Caesar. And the Holy Spirit inspires Paul in Romans and Peter here to say the same thing. This is the will of God for you to submit to government. So just to flesh this out in a few practical ways, what does this mean for our lives? This means... Well, one, we pay our taxes with integrity. That is the will of God for our lives. We do not try to cheat the government out of taxes through any sort of justifications we create. That is sin before God. It pleases God for us to pay taxes to our government fairly and accurately And not begrudgingly, because this is a command of our God. April 15th is a day of worship in our country. You probably haven't been viewing it that way. But it is, right? It's just God saying, you obey and honor me. When you submit to government in these ways, you glorify God by giving government its due. With integrity, which leads to another practical implication. We honor and pray for our leaders. We render, we give respect and honor. Romans, 1 Peter 2, both use that same language. Not just to leaders with whom we agree. 1 Peter 2 said, honor the emperor, i.e. the emperor who was persecuting Christians. Honor him. We have no excuse as the people of God forever dishonoring a president or lawmaker or judge, even when we disagree with someone, 
There is a way to disagree with honor. And God clearly commands us to honor those who lead us and to pray for them sincerely and continually. According to 1 Timothy chapter 2, verse 1 through 3, first of all, then I urge that supplications, prayers, intercessions, and thanksgivings be made for all people, for kings and all who are in high positions, that we may lead a peaceful and quiet life godly and dignified in every way. This is good. It is pleasing in the sight of God, our Savior. This is part of how we humbly submit to the government in our nation by honoring, praying for our leaders. Yet, our submission is conditional. So here's another practical takeaway here. We obey our laws as long as they do not require us to disobey our Lord. We obey our laws. We subject ourselves to the laws of this land. We should be the most law-abiding people in our country. Even when we don't like or prefer certain laws, we obey them as long as they don't require us to disobey our Lord. But if there is a law or a legislator or a governor or government that is telling us either to do something that God forbids or to not do something that God commands, then in the words of Acts chapter 5, verse 29, when the early followers of Jesus were being told not to teach about Jesus, Peter and the apostles answered, we must obey God rather than men. Because, remember the circle within the circle, and this leads to the second takeaway. While we humbly yet conditionally submit to the government in our nation, we ultimately and unconditionally belong to the God over all nations. It's the image of God, not a government, that is stamped on our hearts. And our government may be worthy of our taxes, an appropriate honor, and even a level of obedience but God alone is worthy of our lives. We humbly and conditionally submit to government. We ultimately and unconditionally belong to God. Which means, so just consider the practical implications that flow from this. We align our lives and the church with Jesus and his word, not with a politician or party in this world. The church of Jesus Christ never belongs in the back pocket of a politician or political party. And as Christians, we have a prophetic calling to speak the word of God honorably, justly, compassionately, clearly, and comprehensively to every part of our political sphere. We are Jesus people. We trust and give our total allegiance to one leader alone, the one who lived a sinless life, died a sacrificial death to pay the price for our sins, and rose from the grave. We are not tied to politicians or political parties. We're tied to the king at whose feet every president, politician, and person will one day bow and confess as Lord, which means that more than we want a comfortable life in our nation, we want to spread the gospel of the kingdom among all nations. In other words, we are 
actually willing to let go of comforts in this country, to spread the gospel in this country, and to every other country. We are not living to tack Jesus on top of an American dream as if he's icing on the cake. We get to live it up here and then go to heaven. That is foolishness. We read this earlier in Mark, Jesus' words in Mark chapter 8, verse 34, calling the crowd to him with his disciples, he said to them, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospels will save it. For what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his soul? We are not living for this world. We're living for another world, for another dream, a dream of every nation, tribe, and tongue hearing the good news of Jesus' life and death and resurrection from the grave, which means we sacrifice our comforts. We give our resources. We lay down our lives, even lay aside our freedoms to spread the good news of Jesus in this city and from this city to the ends of the earth, knowing that last implication, our hope is in God and his kingdom, not any government in any country. This is how Jesus taught us to hope and pray. Matthew 6, 9, our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name in all the earth. Your kingdom come. That's what we want more than anything else in this world. We don't want the greatness of our nation. We want the greatness of Jesus' name to be known in all the nations. We live for this. We raise our kids for this. We spend our money on this, seeing his kingdom come. We give our time to this. We set our hope on this. Matthew 24, 14, this gospel of the kingdom will be proclaimed throughout the whole world as a testimony to all the nations, and then the end will come. In the end, our king will come, and he will reign with righteousness and perfect peace and final justice and eternal joy. Why live for a fallible government in a country that will not last instead of giving our lives to the holy God whose kingdom will not end. Well, that's it for today's episode. I'm your host, Stacy Martin. For additional articles, podcasts, events, and more, visit Radical.net or follow us on Facebook and Instagram 